Well, I have 11 o'clock, so I, I think we should get started. Welcome everyone to another uh, Saturday webinar made possible by the Ashbrook Center, which is an independent center at Ashbrook University, offering a number of resources to help teachers teach young, young citizens what it means to be Americans. Uh, I'm Chris Burkett, um, Associate Professor of Political Science and History and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Uh, the purpose of these webinars is to pull together some thoughtful scholars, and we've got two very thoughtful scholars today, just to have a conversation about um, some important ideas. This year's theme is Presidents and Their Times. And so today we're talking about Theodore Roosevelt at the dawn of a new era, and we've recommended some readings. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to look at some of those. We'll be possibly pointing to those and drawing from those documents throughout our conversation today. Uh, I'll just remind you at the beginning, and I'll remind you at the end of the webinar as well, that in the next week you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation if you would like one. Let me introduce our panelists. Peter Myers is Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He is the author of two books, Our Only Star and Compass, Lock on the Struggle for Political Rationality, and Frederick Douglass, Race and the Rebirth of American Liberalism. Uh, Pete teaches regularly in our uh, Master of Arts program uh, on courses that have included race and equality in America, uh, a course on Frederick Douglass, and a course uh, called Democracy in America, which was one of our great text courses. Paul Moreno is the William and Bernice uh, Grucock Chair in Constitutional History at Hillsdale College and is also the Director of Academic Programs at the college's Allen Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship which is in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Black Americans and Organized Labor, A New History, and The American State from the Civil War to the New Deal, The Twilight of Constitutionalism and the Triumph of Progressivism. Paul has also taught in our uh, Master of Arts program, and I think most recently Paul was with me in a course on yep, the Progressive yep. Era. Yep, two years ago. Two years ago. Well, we're trying to, trying to get you back soon. So uh, thanks to both of you for being here. It's great to see you. Uh, let me just start with a broad theoretical question, and then you two, of course, can take it any direction you like. Uh, maybe it's not theoretical simply, but um, a broad sort of scholarly question about um, Roosevelt's place in American history. Uh, I'll start with two big questions that I think are related. One is uh, from the perspective of progressives, right? We often teach Theodore Roosevelt as, as being at the sort of forefront of the progressive movement. But from the perspective of other progressives, there is some question as to how progressive Theodore Roosevelt was. Of course, he called himself a progressive. He ran um, as the candidate endorsed by the, by the progressive party. Uh, but there are other progressive scholars and thinkers at the time who I think were, were skeptical to a certain extent of, of, of Roosevelt. So there's that sort of lingering question. Maybe you'd want to start by addressing that. And the second uh, arises, my second question arises from one of the documents which uh, we recommended students read, which is the heirs of Abraham Lincoln. And I thought it might be interesting to uh, explore the extent to which Roosevelt actually was an heir uh, to Abraham Lincoln. Um, how uh, is that a legitimate claim on his part when he claims that progressives, especially progressives of his ilk, were in fact the true heirs of Abraham Lincoln? So I'll throw those two broad questions out. Feel free to ignore both of them if you like. And <laughs> tell us what you think is significant about Roosevelt. Another question we could actually, uh, in a broad sense, hopefully we will address is, 
it has to do with the um, the title of the of the seminar, the dawn of a new era. In which, in what ways did Roosevelt usher in this new era? What is the new era? How is it new? And what was Roosevelt's role in it? So I'll stop talking and turn it over to either of you to start with your thoughts on the significance of Roosevelt. Uh, if I may, uh, I think the, the Lincoln analogy is absolutely uh, on point because Roosevelt, like Lincoln, is somebody who people on both the left and the right have laid claim to, uh, and also who's been attacked by people on the left and the right as not being part of their uh, their tradition. Um, my friend at Hillsdale College, R.J. Pastrito, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago uh, denouncing those Republicans who were claiming uh, Theodore Roosevelt as, you know, sort of what the uh, ideological founder of the modern uh, Republican Party, that he was actually a, uh, a progressive. And uh, the way in which Roosevelt and also Wilson uh, tried very consciously to to uh, make Abraham Lincoln, to, to make that claim that uh, Lincoln was one of their, uh, that they were continuing the Lincolnian tradition, has also been subject to a lot of uh, historical debate. Uh, a guy named uh, Javiden recently wrote a whole book about Wilson and uh, and Lincoln. So, so this these claims are being made about who are the legitimate heirs of the Republicans and who are the original uh, progressives is, I think, right at the heart of the historical controversy. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I, I just if I can just throw in really quickly, it's not insignificant, of course, that Roosevelt starts out as a as, as a Republican, right? Yeah, uh, a certain kind of Republican, of course. But Paul, but Pete, please, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, just I, I I would make a couple of uh, scattered points maybe, and maybe we can develop them down the road. On the on the to continue with the uh, the theme of the relation to Abraham Lincoln, um, I guess I, I would second what uh, what Paul says that you you see this very obviously, and uh, I mean actually people like us and and uh, and those we support in the in the political world tend to claim. Abraham Lincoln as uh, as continuation of the original principles of the founders, um, and on the other hand, the president himself uh, have, you, you know used to make a very big point of uh, of advertising his uh, his his basic as he saw it his basic continuity with Abraham Lincoln. So it's people on the bo on both sides of the fence. Um, I guess I would say something a little more pointed about about that. Um, I at at the end of the discussion, I would take the position that the discontinuities are ultimately more significant than the than the continuities between T.R. and and Abraham Lincoln. And the short way to say that, I guess, is to say that Lincoln, in virtually all respects, counsels um, a kind of principled reverence for the for the founders of the republic uh that is the constitutional founders as well as uh the authors of the declaration of independence and roosevelt doesn't i mean in earlier in his career i uh he he has very laudatory things to say about the federalist papers but uh roosevelt either counsels um a really pretty dramatic reinterpretation of the founders constitution or an equally dramatic simple modification of it and his i think his his basic his fundamental principles are really very different from the the founders fundamental principles which were 
the fundamental principles of Lincoln. And I mean, to say all of that in a more concentrated way, I think uh, Abraham Lincoln showed, despite what's really a, 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 a significant expansion of executive power in the Civil War, Lincoln showed a, a very scrupulous respect for the constitutional limitations of his office. Uh, and uh, and Theodore Roosevelt doesn't. I mean, I think Theodore Roosevelt interprets the powers of the, exec of the executive as very, very expansive. Powers of the national government generally, but especially the executive branch, in a very, very expansive way. And I think that's that's ultimately a departure. I'll, I'll stop there. I guess we didn't address your, your question, first of all, about how progressive TR was, but maybe we can get to that. Well, I think they're they're actually kind of related, if I may yeah. just for a second think out loud. the um, Your point about uh, Roosevelt uh, at least pays, pays some lip service, not just to the, uh, the framers of the Constitution, but the, but the authors of the Declaration of Independence, at least early in his career. Um, and but then of course he he start he's, it seems to me he shifts a little bit later to talking about human rights the idea of human rights instead of individual natural rights and and that I remember reading Herbert Crowley's as a critique of Roosevelt um, uh, maybe the earlier Roosevelt because as Crowley puts it he still adheres to what he calls the Jeffersonian bondage that is this Jeffersonian idea that individual rights matter somehow more than the sort of general welfare, collective rights of society as a whole. Um, th that may be a case of, a, of an earlier Roosevelt versus a later Roosevelt, which is another question I wanted to ask you both about whether there are, whether we can say Roosevelt was consistent throughout his career uh, in his political form. But Paul, Paul yeah, yeah, it certainly looks like there. Are, you know, there's Roosevelt as the president. You know, the Republican Roosevelt as uh, John Morton Blum, I think, wrote a book by that title. And then the Roosevelt of 1912, the you know the outright progressive who breaks up the Republican Party, and paves the way for for Woodrow Wilson, and it's also I think that you know Roosevelt was not a uh, you know an intellectual. He wasn't a scholar the way that Wilson was. Uh, Wilson's theoretical uh, attack on the founders was much more explicit and started uh, much much earlier. Uh, Roosevelt was more a, a man of action. Uh, in some ways, I think it's usually said that Crowley provided a kind of uh, intellectual framework that sort of gave, gave uh, Roosevelt sort of an intellectual basis for what he felt or what he was doing, but he had not sort of theorized about. So that's another reason why I think Wilson has overshadowed Roosevelt, especially recently among scholars of progressivism, is because Wilson has a much, much uh, longer paper trail. Yeah, oh, that's very interesting. And um, it seems to me that then. Uh, Roosevelt in some okay, let me try to do it this way. It seems as though if, if there might be two Roosevelts, there's the earlier Roosevelt who still in a way pays at least lip service to the founders, but then um, later becomes much more progressive in the in the sense that I think of progressives. That is, he starts calling for uh, more direct democracy reforms, for example, and uh, and gets on board with with a lot of the things that are eventually listed in the Progressive Party platform. That he didn't necessarily advocate earlier on. So either he's either there are two Roosevelts, or maybe we want to say an evolving Roosevelt to be generous to him, uh, or he simply doesn't see the contradictions inherent in those two ways of thinking about things. Um, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on <laughs> on how we think about Roosevelt. He's a he's an he's an enigma in many ways in terms of what he actually thinks. Yeah, I think. Um... 
that, that well, a couple of things that you're onto something, and Crowley's onto something in uh, calling attention to contradictions. Um, but at least I'm not sure Crowley's entirely right about that. I mean, um, I think in a in a certain sense, there is a kind of contradiction in Roosevelt's thinking, really from start to finish. Um, that you could describe by the general terms a conflict between the individualism and the collectivism. Um, but I'm not sure the individualism ever really was a devotion to anything like the founders or anything really close to the founders' idea of individual rights. Um, I think it's more that throughout Roosevelt's career, there is this stress on individual virtue, on a sense of duty. Um, and, uh, you know, he uses the phrase repeatedly, the right stuff in his autobiography. And he says, none of these heroic governmental enterprises that I'm, uh, that I'm advocating are really going to work unless we have the right stuff in, in individuals. And I'm, I think maybe there's a certain tension between the Roosevelt as the the you know the proponent of great heroic individual virtue, a kind of self-reliance that all seems very traditionally American, and Roosevelt, um, who tends to conceive of the majority of Americans by this point as being victimized really by uh, by a relatively small oligarchic elite. Um, and therefore, in need of the the help of uh, of a very powerful, increasingly powerful federal government to um, to protect them or to redress their grievances. And I'm not sure Roosevelt ever saw. I think he probably didn't ever really see that the efforts to redress on the part of the government might themselves be corrupting of the kind of virtue that he that he wants to that he wants to cultivate. Um, so in that way, I, I see a certain contradiction. But on the other hand, it's a meaningful thing. I think that uh, I mean, I, I, in in this, I think uh, maybe with different words, I second what what Paul says. That um, that you know, it's a meaningful thing that that Roosevelt reads Crowley and loves him immediately, right? And and. Uh, and Roosevelt says in his autobiography that it was really about the middle 1890s that he started to see that this impulse toward reform, you know, just first of all, this anti-corruption reform that was driving his early political career has much broader implications. And, and so I, I kind of think the seeds of the progressivism were really always there. And so there's not a great big change. It's just that he was... Um, he's very intellectually ambitious in a certain way, but he was not a theoretical guy, and maybe in the way that Woodrow Wilson was. And so it took him a while to see the full theoretical scope of the the moralistic reform impulse that was always driving him. But I'll 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 stop with that for now, I guess. Well, that, that, that's very interesting because you, in all of that insight, uh, Pete, you reminded me that we we think of Roosevelt personally as this. Um, the sort of bull of a man, right? I mean, the a bull moose of a man, and he's the epitome of rugged individualism in a sense. And he's 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 constantly, you know, um, uh, you know, talking about the virtues of self-reliance on the one hand, and but on the other hand, you're right. I mean, in the context of when he's 
president and then running later in 1912 um, for president, he sees the ordinary common man as the victim to, as you put it, this oligarchic elite um, um, and recognizes that that um, if rugged individualism is to have a chance that be, before that can happen, you have to have government that intervenes on their behalf and gives them those kinds of opportunities. Um, so he's again, it's an interesting thing. But what, what I was just going to say really quickly is the way you describe that, I think, provides some insight into what he means when he uses that phrase uh, that the president, the executive is a steward of the people. One of the things we talk a lot about in my classes is what he what he means by that term steward. Uh, it's not simply somebody who serves, but it's somebody in a way who um, uh, intervenes on the behalf, does service to the people in a way by intervening on their behalf. Um, somehow, it's an interesting term that he uses when he, he calls the executive a steward. And of course, he portrays Lincoln as the chief or the, uh, the in a way, the epitome of, of what the executive as a steward should be. So um, there's a lot we can do with this, of course. Um, it, it, so if I can um, just backtrack a little bit with regard to his admiration for Lincoln and his claims that he is acting in a Lincolnian way. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, Pete, you mentioned the expansion of executive power uh, earlier, and Roosevelt claims to be imitating Lincoln in that regard. We had a comment from uh, from Joe uh, quoting um, from that speech, I believe, where Roosevelt quotes Lincoln saying, capital has its rights. Um, by the way, I encourage others who are joining us to please submit questions anytime you like in the, in the chat box, and we'll, we'll get to those questions as much as possible. So uh, it's. I was hoping maybe we could say something about whether, what what does Roosevelt think about capital? Why does he use the term capital, which is an interesting term in itself, right? Um, what does he think about property rights, and how does he influence and change the relationship of let's just say business to government? If I could connect back to um, uh, uh, a point that was made earlier uh, by Peter. Um, that especially picking up on Crowley's idea of, you know, the good, this is in a way that Crowley and Roosevelt are, are engaged in a revival of classical political ideas about the good life being the political life, about participating in the public life and civic life, and especially in, in the military uh, life. Uh, Roosevelt was, I think, fundamentally uh, a military guy, uh, used military metaphors all the time. Uh, his view of the Spanish-American War, I think, is, is a good illustration of, of this, where he thought that the United States had, was becoming you know, decadent, that commerce and business and capitalism were corroding the American character, and that we needed a good war every once in a while to revive the martial virtues and to, to bring forth the kind of sacrifice for the public good you know, that you see in uh, Athens and Sparta. Uh, and Crowley, I think, again, Crowley, you get a more uh, elaborate, more articulate uh, statement of this, but I think there uh, Crowley was sort of reaching into something that was very deep in uh, Roosevelt's belief about what the good life is and what you know, he he worried about the effects of business and capitalism. And in a way, that takes us back to the whole debate in the American founding about the place of you know, modern liberalism, the commercial republic versus the you know, old-fashioned classical idea of republicanism. Yeah, but it seems to me I just. It, it's, it's striking to me that I could be wrong about this, but he, he talks about capital 
And of course, Lincoln did use that term, but the capital, capitalism, that, that way of thinking about property is, is, it sounds much more European in a way than it does American. At least I, I don't, I, you know, you go back and you read the, the debates at the time of the founding or even in the early Republic, that term capital doesn't get tossed around that much. Um, capital, the term capital is usually associated with, with socialism, I think, and I could be wrong about this, please correct me. Um, uh, we know, by the way, Roosevelt called himself a socialist uh, as he understood socialism. Does this, is this, is this a, is Roosevelt acting when he uses terms like this or when he talks about property rights or the rights of capital, is, is Roosevelt uh, acting simply in accord with the sort of popular views at the time uh, or is he trying to change the way Americans think about property rights or maybe it's both? Well, I, I would. Oh yeah, go ahead, Paul. Okay, I, I would say that he was uh, picking up on uh, sort of the the spirit of the age and the work of a lot of European had started to seep into American political thought uh, that rejected the idea of property or you know uh, ownership in the traditional for the founders sort of John Locke natural rights tradition uh, that property that people had a natural right to property. That's one of the things, the principal thing that they form government to uh, to protect. Uh, this is the whole social contract, natural rights uh, philosophy of the founding. And uh, the progressives, on the other hand, regarded property as something that was instrumental. Uh, property rights were something that you could adjust according to the needs of society. But they weren't something that the founders would have understood that term. People had a right to. Uh, your right to property was only good insofar as it, it contributed to the to the public good. There was nothing really about individual right to property or to anything else. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, that's one of the points I was gonna I was gonna make. I think the I mean to maybe oversimplify slightly, the founders about property rights are Lockeans, and uh, and and the the idea. The, the Lockean idea is that you have a natural right to property because you have a natural right to your own person, which means your capacity to labor, among among other things. Uh, I mean, that's the original, that's the original property right, and from that it follows that wherever you labor, especially wherever you labor productively, you have a right in the in the product of your of your labor, and that's within large boundaries that's irrespective of the of the use you you make of it um, and uh, you know so for Locke there's a the natural law limitation on on accumulation is only the, I mean his language is that you have to leave as much and as good for others but I think translated into more modern conditions that means that you have to refrain from using your property in such a way that denies or obstructs others opportunity to acquire but the way that in the new nationalism speech, the way that Roosevelt describes it, um, he says you have you have to earn your wealth by service to others. And the, I mean, the harder edged way of putting that would be to say that you really have no property rights um, unless they are put to the service of society, of the the, the social good. He says, uh, I don't remember if it's in that speech or another. He says we will permit the accumulation of great wealth only if it if it benefits the community. You know, so the property right for him is really socially derived in a way that it's not 
for uh, for Locke and for the founders. Um, and I mean, to add a further point, to come back to the 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 thought about the relation to Lincoln and, and capital, um, when when Roosevelt draws out his sense of that relation, he compares. Uh, you know, as they've come to be known, the robber barons of his day, the industrialists of his day, with the slaveholders in in Lincoln's day, um, and that seems to say, and he characterizes that as a dispute between property rights and human rights. But for Lincoln, the whole point of opposing slavery was is to say that this is an illegitimate claim to property. This is not a conflict between property rights and human rights, there are no property rights in another human being. Uh, and so I think in that respect, the the analogy with the slaveholders is entirely misbegotten. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it also speaks to a certain tendency to moralize and demonize the the his his adversaries in a way that really is quite foreign to Lincoln. I mean, the the last point I guess I would I would just toss out very briefly about that is that uh, when uh, <laughs> you know the the manner in which he speaks of the the industrialists who he thinks are are abusing their their corporate trust uh, is 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 highly highly moralistic and in that respect it's much more it much more resembles the, the abolitionists of Lincoln's day than it does Lincoln himself i mean lincoln says about the slaveholders look you know they're just what we would be if we were in their circumstances and, uh, and uh, you know on the other hand uh, you know tr gives this new nationalism speech at Osawatomie, kansas right you know conjuring the spirit of john brown not not abraham lincoln uh, this old testament warrior which he considers really i think the true commencement of the of of the civil war that's kind of an amazing fact i mean lincoln thought john brown was borderline insane uh, and uh, and uh, and tr links the two of them together and then links them both with with him yeah, that's a great point. He's dedicated the national, new nationalism speech is dedicating a it's a, it's a is it a park a, a memorial park in the honor yeah. of John? Yeah, that's yeah. And he calls it. Um, let me let me track it down and uh, and and look it up quickly. He he calls it. He says we're here to commemorate an epoch making event in the long struggle for the for the rights of man. And the epoch making event is John Brown's actions in Kansas. Um, which about which there's some ambiguity about who pulled the trigger and you know who uh, who did the actual killings and so forth, but they're um, but they're very very violent actions. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, Roosevelt goes on in the speech and says, uh, "We today, we progressives today, are fighting for exactly the same thing that that they, I guess, the people who thought like John Brown were fighting mm -hmm. uh, for uh, leading up to and during the Civil War." So that's a great parallel. Uh, we we have um, we have several good questions um, submitted by participants. Um, all of them sort of related to what we're talking about. So I'm trying to figure out which which one to start with. Um, actually, since we're on this topic, um, how about this one? Does, does Theodore Roosevelt get more more radical on property rights post presidency? And if so, my screen keeps jumping around. Sorry. Is it because he misses being the man in the arena, so he's sort of reacting from from the desire to get back 
uh, in the limelight. Does he get more radical on property rights? Yeah, I think his, his his rhetoric does. Um, I, I, I and I suppose he does to some extent. I mean, he's more radical than he was when he was the governor of New York. I think that's. I think that's that's right. Whether he's really more radical than he was when he was serving as president, or whether he just felt himself constrained as president, I'm not. I'm less. I'm less sure about that. Whether he's reacting to psychological needs, I I can't. I can't say. I don't do. I don't do psychohistory so much. Um, but uh, but it is. It's pretty clear that he did miss being uh, being the man in the arena. But I'll I'll defer to Paul. Yeah, I think we're certainly the 1912 campaign was portrayed by a lot of people as just being Roosevelt's vendetta uh, about his perception that his policies had been betrayed by Taft and the, the conservatives, the old guard in the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, without being you know, doing uh, psycho history, uh, Roosevelt certainly did have that kind of personality, uh, some, somewhat like Andrew Jackson, where he did tend to personalize uh, these policy disputes. And uh, it could be very moralistic. Uh, so I think that certainly had a, an important element in his decision to break up the Republican Party in 1912. Yeah, that's always a question that comes up in, uh, in our classes on the progressives. Why did Roosevelt run again? <laughs> was it was it, you know, was it a personal thing uh, or, or was it a principal thing? And probably, you know, you know, probably both. But having said, uh, let me add a quick point that maybe uh, um, conflicts with the point I just made a bit. Uh, having said that I don't do psychohistory, I, I, I guess I generally stand by that. But my my I mean, if we're on the subject, my reading of Roosevelt is that he's really a, he's a very quixotic kind of character. I mean, I mean, in the in the in the literal original sense, he's a Don Quixote type. I mean, I think he took he seems to, he he's he says about himself that he was born um, in the silk stocking class, you know, um, and I, and there's a certain aspect of that formation. Maybe this is just aristocratic, you know, the kind of disdain for the lower pursuit of, of the bourgeois class that has to earn its money. Or maybe it's a certain pride that revels in being a kind of traitor to the, to the upper class. I'm not really sure, but but he, he seems to have spent his life longing for heroic causes, plunging himself into heroic causes. And, it, and it's, it's a tremendously picturesque and interesting life story as, a, you know, as, a, as, a, as an illustration, as a result of that. Um, but the moralizing, I think, kind of fits, fits into that. He, he, by, by calling him a kind of Don Quixote type, what I mean more Specifically, is that he spends his life, I think, looking for people in distress, you know, whose condition he can relieve in a in a heroic way, and that gets that gets broader and broader and more and more ambitious as uh, uh, as his career goes on. Yeah, in fact, Woodrow Wilson in the 1912 campaign, and Wilson knew the campaign was really between him and Roosevelt, uh, was aware of this and was afraid. He says, you know, look, Roosevelt's a dynamic, charismatic figure, you know, and I'm a kind of a cold uh, intellectual. And he thought that was a big problem that he had to overcome in that campaign. And a lot of what Roosevelt was able to get done as president relied upon a kind of rhetorical flair, uh, sort of his his use of muckraking journalism to get the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act and things like that. So Roosevelt did have a sense of you know, sort of the need for uh, political dramatics, uh, which was characteristic of a lot of 20th century uh, presidents. 
most of his opponents said that was exactly his problem was that he was he was a threat to, to become a dictator, that he was an American Caesar, uh, that there were no limits to what his uh, his ambitions were. Such was his thirst for glory and heroism that he would he would do anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah. and, and indeed, uh, uh, Lincoln, in one of his first speeches, warns against exactly that kind of character, mm-hmm. uh, the tribe of the eagle and the I forget what the other metaphor that he uses was but the the tendency for in a republic it's not going to be enough for men of roosevelt's character uh to just preserve the institutions that have been handed on uh, to us by the by the founders they're going to seek something you know some greater path of glory that's very interesting yeah that was from lincoln's uh speech at the young men's lyceum right was that the first or the second the temperance speech and that one with the yeah, that was the public speech, I believe, right? I'm right, Peter, about that? I think that's right. I know that that did come before the temperance address. The temperance was 1842, and that was 1838. Yeah. We have a lot of good questions coming in now. And uh, since we're on this topic, I'll just throw this one out here. Maybe either of you uh, uh, could, could address this. Uh, of course, Roosevelt is also associated with, with his military career. He's, he's celebrated as a hero. Uh, in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, did his did his military career have an impact on his presidency, or was that simply more symptomatic of his general uh, character? No, I, th- I think it did. In the uh, there were important reforms in the American Army, for example, during the Roosevelt administration under uh, I think Elie Root, who was the Secretary of War, uh, because the Spanish-American War showed that the American Army was not up to sort of modern standards, and uh, you know, so America's end up being able to go into World War One with uh, a much different military than it had uh, in the 19th century. And Roosevelt's concern about you know, foreign policy, I think, you know, looked at in the, in the long perspective, uh, he was more interested in foreign affairs and America's place as a world power than he was in a lot of these domestic uh, reform matters. And that's quite appropriate because uh, foreign policy and military stuff is constitutionally uh, delegated to the to the president. So I think Roosevelt's as commander in chief, Roosevelt as uh, a diplomat uh, was probably the the major part of his presidency. Okay, that's great. Uh, Yeah, that's really to that just a small a small point or an added maybe dimension of it. You you see in that. I don't know if that's part of the paradox of Roosevelt or if it just marks a certain discontinuity maybe between Roosevelt and present-day progressives that you see on the one hand this um uh, well i guess i guess in some he he could maybe be similar to a certain extent to lyndon johnson in this respect but not to the progressives of our own day in the sense that that you have roosevelt advocating um very dramatic expansion of the federal government's scope and range of activities in domestic policy and you also have him advocating um, military preparation, military buildup, you know, and decrying the lack of preparation that that uh, he thinks. Uh, I mean, he, he he's uh, he's very severe with Jefferson <laughs> and Madison for this, and he thinks that uh, it's kind of a, an, a, a, a long-standing American problem to dismantle the military after every military conflict, and so and so you get this. Uh, you know what? What uh, progressive Democrat today is saying both those things, right? That we need to we need a large military buildup as well as a large buildup in administrative government. Maybe Jim Webb, uh, who's barely a Democrat. Uh, so that's that's one thing. But the other thing is that uh, that 
the the question had to do with uh, what the military service, what impact it had on his presidency. And and I guess I see a kind of a continuity between the foreign policy and the domestic policy. And at least rhetorically, this this, um, traces back to the point about moralism, that Roosevelt was forever declaring war on things. I mean, you know, he was he he declared he was declaring war on the you know, I mean, not quite on the trusts, not on their existence, but, uh, you know, war on the on the malefactors of great wealth and uh, uh, and war on corruption and war on this and that. And there's a serious constitutional point in that, I think, that when you go to war with something, the powers of the executive expand. You know, you, you kind of place the government on an emergency footing. But also, I think it's just a it's a mode. It's a condition that he was comfortable in, you know, the, the fighting, fighting wars heroically. And so in that way, I think there's a, there's a continuity between the two. Yeah. And in uh, wartime and in foreign policy, you don't have to deal with Congress so much. And you don't have to deal with the courts, who Roosevelt had a great, uh, great disdain for. And I think one of the chief uh, uh, dynamics of 20th century progressivism, modern liberalism, is the introduction into domestic affairs of that kind of foreign policy uh, approach uh, to things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think yeah, this is great. I think Roosevelt, in some ways, had much more, at least for the next uh, first say two thirds of the 20th century, much more lasting impact on foreign policy. Not to, not to downplay what he did domestically, but uh, I think we can make the argument that in some ways he fundamentally transformed the way we think about the role of the United States in the world and how we go about moving through it. I, and I'd like to come back to that uh, eventually because I do think that's important. And we did ask people to read his um, the excerpt from his uh, State of the Union address, which has come to be known as the uh, Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. But we, uh, several of the things that you've been saying, both of you have raised some great questions. And I'm going to kind of lump some of them together because they're related. Uh, actually, somebody just submitted that great quote from Roosevelt where he says, if I can find it, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. Yeah. And, uh, and and the person who submitted, I don't I don't see the name. I apologize. Uh, I interpret Armageddon as the power of big business over the power of individual citizens. Will you relate his comment and the power of increasing the executive power uh, and governmental powers to reaching more toward an equality for the common man? I like the quote. It's tied into what you're just saying about declaring war on things. Armageddon is the is the war of wars in a way. Right? So, and, and it's also about the de- declaring war and looking upon it as a kind of a holy war. Uh, in fact, if you look at the Progressive Party's uh, convention in uh, 1912, that that's their sort of the, the culmination of, it's shot through with all kinds of you know social gospel uh, progressivism. Uh, there was a kind of religious basis for a lot of the progressive movement that historians have really not uh, paid enough attention to. And it, it was had long roots going back into the 19th century to the uh, pre-Civil War uh, abolitionists and the crusades against drink and gambling and Sabbath breaking and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And Roosevelt was, was comfortable being at the head of that kind of uh, movement. If you look at the regular Republican convention uh, in 1912, uh, you see quite a contrast. And it, it was Elie Root, who was the, the uh, uh, convention chairman, who drew a contrast in this that I think was you know, right on, where he said, the founder's view of human nature was that it was fundamentally flawed, that human beings are are, are finite beings that were, you know, <laughs> the Federalist Papers say all the time that we're uh, depraved and wicked. And so you have to keep government limited because human beings can't be trusted with with unlimited power. 
whereas the liberal Protestantism of the social gospel in the late 19th century had a much more optimistic view of human nature and was much more willing to confer power on government to deal with all these problems that the churches had been traditionally ones to uh, to pay attention to. So that Armageddon uh, uh, culmination to that convention, I think, is illustrates some profound cultural religious differences between uh, conservatives and progressives uh, in this period. And Paul, I think you just answered Joe's question yeah. on whether that holy war of progressivism was more of a Protestant or a Catholic. Influence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's obvious from that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, building on some of these things, some other great questions that have been submitted. Um, uh, well, maybe just going off of what, what Paul was just talking about, somebody wanted to know, can you can we explain the difference between uh, the new nationalism the square deal, these are two, 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 two terms that Roosevelt uses. And then they also added Wilson's new freedom in there. And then I thought maybe also, if you don't mind, can we talk a little bit about Roosevelt's critique of Taft and what their relationship was like? I find that fascinating because we know that Taft was sort of his chosen, uh, chosen heir, right? Um, and then there was that falling out. So can, can we, somebody wanna to touch on that a little bit, if you don't mind? Uh, which one would you like to take up first, the Square Deal, New Nationalism one, or the Roosevelt and Taft one? I would like that question, frankly, because I'm often confused over that. What is the New Nationalism and what is the Square Deal? What is the what what is involved when Roosevelt throws those things out there? Are these official platforms? Are they two are they two names for essentially the same thing? Do they reflect a general sort of philosophy of government? What is what does he mean by these terms? Well, I take the square deal while he was president to mean that uh, the government ought to intervene in a way that was uh, just and equitable uh, to both sides. Uh, thinking of the 1902 anthracite coal strike, uh, for example, uh, and his intervention in that saying that, well, you know, capital and labor uh, have a dispute here. Uh, in his view, the government had traditionally always taken capital side. Uh, and that was unfair. And now, as he's going to be sort of a neutral umpire and uh, uh, bring you know, bring the two sides together. In the new nationalism speech, though, the one that he gives at uh, Osawatomi, he says he, he changes that. He says, when when I say I stand for the square deal, I don't just mean uh, enforcing fairly the existing rules of the system. I call for changing those rules when things have you know, evolved in a way that will achieve a more substantial equality of opportunity. And I think that's fundamentally different. There he's talking about more of an equal outcomes uh, view of what government uh, should do. Government needs to intervene on one side, but this time on the side of labor against capital. Uh, you see this more fully developed in, the, in, in Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, uh, in, in you know, the Wagner Act of 1935, for example. So I think that's one of the changes between the Republican Roosevelt presidency, square deal, and the new nationalism of 1912. No, that's very helpful, Paul. That helps. That actually helps put the New Deal, mm. that Roosevelt calls, that Franklin Roosevelt calls it, in a much more perspective versus a square deal. Yeah. Now, I guess that's, that's fascinating. Please. Peter. Yeah, I, I would add to that by just emphasizing the sweepingly radical character of the of the new nationalism. I mean, this this may be the result of uh, of an encounter with Crowley. It may be the result of uh, of uh, T.R. being able to read and think a little more at leisure, you know, when he's when he's out of office. But I would connect it, I guess, with the Armageddon point, too, in a certain sense, um, that I think uh, TR makes that makes that comment about Armageddon. Uh, and I think that 
one of the things he's he means by that is that he sees the I mean he sees his present age as uh, as a period in which America is is uh, is amid a kind of crisis. And the crisis is akin to the Civil War in the sense that he thinks that the prospects for genuinely democratic government are really imperiled. And I think that's that's the basic parallel he sees between himself and Lincoln, um, except the oligarchy, you know, the character of the oligarchy that that the American democracy is being threatened by is different, um, although Roosevelt seems to think not not you know under the skin all that much all that much different so he he sees himself at war for the really for the preservation of democracy and i think that to him the nationalism idea and the democracy idea are almost the same thing <laughs> that that uh, uh that america will become fully democratic you know he uses the language of a social and industrial democracy as well as a political one so far as the country becomes or the governmental system becomes much more constitutionally nationalist um, and uh, and and in that way I mean, I, th I think that has a whole bunch of consequences that I won't. I mean, to try to explain all of them would be a long lecture, and I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. But, um, but this is this is very closely related to his emphasis on on presidential government versus congressional government, um, and it's also very closely related to uh, what turns out to be the real contribution of the progressive domestically administrative government within the executive branch. All of these things are functions, really, of his constitutional nationalism and his desire to perfect the the uh, the the American the American democracy, which is kind of ironic that administrative government becomes the rule of the unelected, um, but uh, but he thinks of that as a perfection really of the of the democratic cause in the United States. I mean, it, it's a it's the playing out of one of Tocqueville's observations that the tendency of democracy will be toward centralization. And Tocqueville thought the genius of the U.S. Constitution was to resist that, and Roosevelt thought that that was its defect, and that and it needed to be modified so it didn't so it didn't resist that. Um, so so I guess that that much is uh, is my my two cents about the um, about the new about the new nationalism. I just like to add whenever the progressives talk about democracy, you really have to be on your guard, because and a lot of what they did was on. Superficial level, at least, trying to make government more responsive to the people and to encourage participation. Uh, yet, what you see is a, a really dramatic decrease in political participation that follows on a lot of these progressive reforms. And there were a lot of progressives who thought that uh, keeping, you know, immigrants and blacks, for instance, from voting, uh, changing the electoral system to reduce the influence of, you know, ethnic groups and those sorts of things, uh, was, you know, they, they were some of the leaders of that movement. So there's a real ambivalence among the progressives when they talk about uh, democracy. Yeah, I was going to have that's this is very interesting. I was going to ask about this, this, this term democracy that progressives frequently throw out. It seems like it means different things to different progressives or it means multiple things to all progressives. Um, there's democracy. Uh, you know, Peter mentioned the direct democracy reforms of, of, the, of Roosevelt uh, and others, giving the people more direct say and therefore control in a way, at least on the surface over what goes on in politics and government. But 
it seems to me that um, this points back to the beginning of the new nationalism speech. Uh, Peter, you made me think about this. Without the new nationalism, that is, without the expansion of of of, um, of, of the control of regulatory power and so on and so forth of the federal government, there is no possibility for a true democracy, he says. Which makes me think that the other essential aspect of democracy is, I don't want to, I don't want to reduce it simply to say that the needs of the people are met, but that but there that there has to be ample opportunity for people to to rise to uh, to advance in life to take advantage of the opportunities that Americans have traditionally uh, been able to take advantage of and and it it seems to me that it's tied that sense of of opportunity is tied much more for progressives to material prosperity um, uh, and prof, uh, material opportunity in a way uh, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. I apologize, but it seems like democracy means two things. There's sort of the mechanisms of democracy, uh, primaries or uh, direct primaries and um, referendums and initiatives and these things. And then there's the essence of democracy, if I can use a term that Franklin Roosevelt throws around, which really in the end kind of boils down to a kind of equality. Without so so the so the mechanisms of democracy aren't unimportant to a, a guy like Theodore Roosevelt. But what might be more important is the, as you were saying, Paul, I think the the effect, the end result of it, this kind of equality that has to come out of it. If if that's the more important aspect of what democracy is, then then you may need this kind of um, then you need this uh, expanded regulatory um, power and therefore administrative aspect of government under the under the leadership of of, of stewards. Administrative leaders. That's that's interesting. That makes me think. I mean, all of these things, all of these things really tie together. When we were talking about the the Protestantism and the rhetoric about about Armageddon, I think um, that ties in with what you're saying now, Chris, in the sense that um, there's there seems to be a kind of materialism in. Uh, in the say the the social gospel of uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, you know that that you save the soul really by by caring for people materially, and the moral reforms will more or less naturally follow from that. So you create this social and industrial democracy, and you make sure, you know, you institute. Um, a, you know, a regulatory and eventually redistributory redistributive regime to try to care for those who are relatively disadvantaged. And you suppose that out of this will come the qualities of initiative and enterprise and self-reliant citizenship that Roosevelt celebrates and not the opposite, not the, you know, not the, not the dependency that he would have, that he would have, that he did have actually a fair amount of, of contempt for. Um, so yeah, there is, there is that, um, and there, there is also, I guess, to come back to this point about democracy in a different way, the formal aspect of democracy, I think it, it is ironic that he wants to expand the power of voting rights, but in a certain sense, he and they, all most of the progressives, um, but in a certain sense to, I mean, to, to severely diminish the powers of Congress, um, that, that he sees the powers of Congress he sees Congress as a realm of fragmentation um, and the rule of special interests. And 
he sees the presidency as the only elected office that's representative of a genuine national interest because it's the only one uh, elected by the whole people of the United States. And all of this sets him at a, sets him apart from the, from the founder's vision of it. Madison in 51 says that in Republican government, in popular government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. And Roosevelt sees it just the opposite, that it's the executive authority that needs to predominate because that's the one that's really truly representative of the, of the people. But that means more and more the seeding of authority um, from the Congress to the executive branch um, in the form of uh, in the form of administrative agencies, who Roosevelt is very confident will be staffed by impartial experts who will really be essentially nonpartisan administrators, and all of that I think ties in with the the you were calling it earlier, the optimism, the idealism, the kind of utopianism in the um, in some of the religious rhetoric that they see human nature is perfectible in ways that the founders don't. More than that, they see as a kind of providential design or as a as a historical process, um, humankind evolving toward the state of perfection. And one of the things that means, I'm speaking in the language of high theory here, I know, but one of the, one of the things that means is that um, administrative government replaces genuine politics. That politics as the clashing of interests and the differing of, of partisan opinions um, has to get shoved out. And administrative, we all agree on ends at a certain point, and the, all that's left to govern really is just to administer, to find the right means, and you can find impartial experts to do that. So on the one hand, the presidency is a great steward of the people. On the other hand, the, the people don't really govern themselves in, uh, in, a, in a day to day basis anymore. So all of that is a, a scattering of thoughts, theoretically, I guess. No, that's fascinating. And in the middle of that, Peter, you mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about Roosevelt's views on Congress or the progressive view of Congress. And that's the realm of, that's the realm of politics in the lower, low sense, right? Special interests and control by business and things. And I'm, I'm glad you did that because I think that helped to address a uh, question. Um, I think maybe Matt submitted it about uh, Roosevelt's um, views on Congress and how well he worked with them. And I think that also helps to answer, at least in part, Roosevelt's critique of Taft, who he characterized, in, at least in his autobiography, <coughs> servant and errand boy of, of Congress, was unwilling to take a sort of strong independent stand as the executive and therefore the steward of the people uh, against Congress and congressional oversight and, and interference. So. Uh, I thought that was that was very you know per, pursuant to the thing I just said I'm tempted to add to that that Roosevelt I mean in certain of his more grandiose states of mind he seems to have thought himself as kind of standing at the end of history and impatient with everybody else that he's transcended politics and Taft hasn't you know Taft is still a creature of the special interests and so Taft has to be denounced it's not really a legitimate disagreement from the perspective of Roosevelt it's Taft being reactionary. Taft hasn't evolved to the point that that Roosevelt has in the in the historical process. Yeah, that's that's a great point. By the way, that's that's a very Wilsonian description of Roosevelt, right? I mean, yeah. he's he's got historical insights. 
that that others don't. And I think uh, if I can just mention quickly, I, that's the sense I get when I read the uh, the new nationalism speech, because he begins with this sort of idea of the the historical struggle that's a kind of an upward struggle, and Roosevelt is now sort of standing at that high point of that of that historical struggle, able to look back and see see where we've come from, and therefore also where we're going. I I think. I think that's an important point, and that 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 view informs the thought of several progressives, uh, including Roosevelt, but especially Woodrow Wilson. I think Wilson is Wilson is almost the reembodiment of Hegel in that sense. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have so many great questions coming in as a result of your of your your thoughts. Um, this one moves a little bit further back. I wanted to maybe bring this up. Uh, somebody asked about this. Was when we were talking about how, in many ways, he's Roosevelt's kind of a contradiction um, or an enigma in ways. Uh, we we know that he's he's you know talked big about trusts, and yet he had a, a a fairly good relationship with several financial. It's called them titans, if you will, find a, a very powerful men, including J.P. Morgan. Um, I'm going to tie these two questions together. If anybody wants to address them, what was his relationship with? Uh, like with men like J.P. Morgan, uh, and what were his views on banking in general? Did he have an impact on the creation of the Federal Reserve? And Paul, I think you've written about this. Yeah, yeah his, his relationship with Morgan is interesting because Morgan was an important uh, campaign contributor. Um, and the, the, the story goes that when Roosevelt uh, leaves the presidency and uh, goes off to, on his African hunting uh, trip, that Morgan says, you know, let every lion do his duty. You know that he was he was an enemy of, uh, of Roosevelt's, but uh, they, they they had a complicated relationship. I think that the chief thing was that Roosevelt wanted to make sure that Morgan and people like him, you know, knew their place. Uh, that the government was superior to the trust to these economic organizations, and so Roosevelt uh, again, sort of dramatically and for reasons that that had nothing to do with economics. Roosevelt didn't know very much about economics, you know, let, let alone finance uh, banking. Uh, what he was interested primarily in was that the people saw that the federal government was was superior to these economic organizations because yeah, I'm sure the you know, U.S. Steel probably had a bigger budget than the whole federal government uh, in, in 1901, employed more people. Uh, so you had the tremendous power of these new economic organizations, especially relative to the states, who were at least nominally the, uh, the, the creators, the incorporators of these bodies. So for Roosevelt, it was a, a, a matter of perception, a matter of image, not so much about market share. His antitrust views were, were you know, sort of about uh, the, the more morally uh, and emotionally based than they were economically based. He did. Uh, there's a very interesting story in 1907, in the financial panic of 1907. Uh, Roosevelt arranged the, the bailout of the Knickerbocker Trust Company. Uh, in order to do that, he had to assure J.P. Morgan and his friends uh, and U.S. Steel that if they acquired the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, uh, he wouldn't uh, enforce the antitrust laws uh, against them. And they went ahead and did that. And that turned out to be a, a big scandal because, you know, they, they were able to buy TCI for, you know, a fraction of what it was, what it was really worth. Uh, but Roosevelt felt it's a lot like in uh, 2008, 2009. In the middle of a financial panic, Roosevelt thought the president has to intervene and you know uh, take care of the uh, stability of the American economy. But he he didn't know much about economics or or finance, and it looked like in that situation that he was really taken advantage of by the people who did. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. That's that's very interesting. Um, 
I, I thought we have about 15 minutes, um, Peter, unless you wanted to add anything to that. No, I, I, that's an area of Roosevelt's uh, life and career I don't know that much about. I, I'll be, I'm, I'm learning from Paul as we're, uh, as we're going on. Yeah, that was very interesting. I had no idea. Um, uh, I, I thought maybe with our last 15 minutes, we, we, maybe we should segue a little bit to his impact on foreign policy. And as a way to do that, um, Candy asked about um, or, or brought up um, the seizure of, uh, of American Indian lands uh, at the turn of the century and under Roosevelt. Uh, how do we think about Roosevelt's relations with, with, uh, with American Indians? Is it a good relationship? Bad relationship? Maybe that's not the right question, but beneficial. And he's, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but you know, I think Roosevelt said, you know, I've been accused of saying that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Uh, but I never said that. I believe that nine out of ten are, and I wouldn't inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. But I don't know if that's an actual uh, a quote from it. But certainly Roosevelt had views on uh, race and the development of of races within America and around the world uh, that strike us today as being quite uh, benighted. Uh, again, this is this is quite common among the progressives, and uh, you mentioned Hegel. It sort of goes back to him that. Different races, different groups of people were in different stages of evolutionary development. And Roosevelt firmly believed that the Anglo-Saxons or the Aryans were the, the leaders in this. And uh, for, I think for Roosevelt, it meant that we had an obligation to bring along the inferior races, as he you know, called them, uh, down this path of, uh, of evolutionary development. And that explains his views on imperialism. Uh, as well as a lot of his domestic uh, uh, views about uh, blacks and Native Americans. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they would describe them as somehow historically uh, behind, so to speak. Uh, what do we, we, we call people today developing peoples? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. not as advanced or civilized. Those are the less politically correct terms. <laughs> That they often used back then. I think, yeah, we we might even be past those terms. Uh, I mean, the the terms of development and underdevelopment. Uh, to to all of that, I would just add. Uh, I mean, it, any any who are interested in the question, um, Roosevelt wrote a lot. Uh, he was an enormously energetic fellow as a writer as well as a, an an activist in certain ways and. So he wrote several volumes on the winning of the West, for one, and he wrote a biography on Thomas Hart Benton, senator from Missouri, who was a big 19th century senator, big advocate of westward expansion. And the point of those, or at least a main point in those works is, as Paul, as Paul says, um, Roosevelt was a believer in manifest destiny. You know, I mean, Roosevelt believed it was the it was the destiny of uh, of the United States to expand from sea to shining sea, you know, and that means that it was uh, it was the fate of the the Native Americans. Well, I don't know if I should say to be subordinated, but at least to have their lives radically transformed. It was the fate of the, the better way to say it maybe is this: it was the fate of the Native Americans to give way. To this advancing civilization, at which Roosevelt would have said, I mean, did say that they're welcome to join, you know, if uh, if they can be assimilated into it. But there's no sense of respect for what we call cultural diversity in uh, in Roosevelt. There's this idea that we're an advanced civilization, they're not, 
And so it's really for their benefit that we, you know, if, if need be, we, we conquer them and assimilate them. Um, he didn't think that all peoples could be assimilated, apparently, or at least not very easily, um, to, uh, to the American civilization. He, uh, this is a little apart from the question, but not so far. He, he, uh, he was an enthusiastic supporter of uh, the, the laws for the exclusion of Chinese immigrants, for instance, because he didn't think that they were, they were assimilable. I don't think he quite thought that about, the, about Native Americans, but he was, um, you know, as he says, uh, he says Easterners should not be sentimental about, uh, about the wars against the Indians, that, uh, you know, if they <coughs> assimilate good, but if they have to be conquered, then, um, then we should be unsentimental about conquering them. In, in this way, too, Roosevelt says things that are, uh, that are very much at odds with what virtually everybody thinks uh, in the present day. Yeah, you mentioned Thomas Hart Benton and uh, his speech on um, uh, the destiny of the race uh, sometime in the 1840s around the time of the Mexican War is a good illustration of that kind of you know, proto-progressive view of uh, uh, racial development. Uh, a contemporary of Roosevelt's would be uh, Albert Beveridge, uh, his support of imperialism, his March of the Flag speech, uh, and he was very close to Roosevelt. He was, I think, was either chairman of the Progressive uh, Convention in 1912, or is he? I remember, was he even Roosevelt's running mate in 1912? Albert Beveridge. That's a great question. Yeah, I look that up. <laughs> yeah, I got to look that. I got to look that up too. That sounds right to me, but I've got to. I've got to. I'd have to look that up too. Yeah, but that Beveridge was uh, Paul. You mentioned Beveridge. Uh, um, well, Beveridge. When it comes to foreign policy issues, and especially this question of. Um, uh, oh, you know, our flirtation with imperialism and, and the not just the right, but in a way the duty, at least this is the language that Beveridge and, and Roosevelt both commonly use. The United States has not just a right, but in, they argue that we had a duty to govern certain, certain uncivilized or less civilized peoples, and this extended to the Philippines, right? Um, uh, the people of the Philippines, and to a certain extent, even the Cubans. The Cubans were or were a little more historically advanced and civilized. They had a little more advantage over other peoples of the world. Uh, but, but it seems to me that one of the major shifts that takes place in foreign policy at that time, and uh, Peter, you mentioned this earlier, this is not an aspect that, Nash, that, that, um, that actually persists with progressives today, at least on the surface. But one of the major shifts is that the United States, uh, as long as we are, um, we can govern uh, other peoples, both in the Western Hemisphere and outside of the Western Hemisphere, we can govern them so long as it's done for one or both of two reasons. It's good for the people being governed in the sense that we're going to help them sort of advance um, culturally or scientifically or technologically or however we want to put it, right, help them sort of get caught up historically. Or two, if it's good for the general advancement of civilization or mankind, right, toward Toward this again, this sort of ideal notion of what uh, what the world is meant to become, and uh, I think I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit. I apologize, but but it seems to me that the beverage, the language anyway, that beverage and Theodore Roosevelt uses is virtually identical. I see virtually no disagreement among them over this idea that you know, look, if the United States needs to to conquer and govern, uh, and maybe in some cases wipe out. <laughs> I mean, there's one speech where Roosevelt actually 
I don't have the speech in front of me. Roosevelt actually says uh, there may be some races that, um, and by races, I think he, he generally means cultures or societies uh, that, that may, that, that stand in the way of human progress and, and may need to be swept aside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nobody's going to miss them. It's quite shocking. Uh, yeah, he's quite explicit about that. Yeah, some of that and, um, is quite shocking to us today. It follows from his uh, his belief in uh, in a, in a kind of social evolution. You know, he was an evolutionist, like uh, like a lot of the progressives were. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I on the on the 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 prior point you were making about the purposes of the of the imperialism. <laughs> You had, you said earlier in the discussion, Chris. You you indicated uh, you commented on the the really large influence um, in his legacy that TR has, especially in American foreign policy. And I think that's I think that's right. That that it's not so much you don't want to describe it as imperialism, and it isn't the kind of conquer and hold, just acquisitive kind of imperialism, maybe that you find. Uh, um, espoused in Machiavelli, but um, but as a as pursuant to a desire to democratize the world, to civilize the world, and also pursuant to a great confidence that we know how to do it, you know, that we're the democratizers, we're the advanced civilization. There's a sense in which there are versions of that in in both parties, that that the legacy is a bipartisan legacy. Um, uh, which maybe sets it apart from uh, from the from the domestic policy legacy, which seems to be more of a partisan matter. Oh, that's a great that's a great point. It's it strikes me that it's not so much a that, that way of thinking about America's responsibilities in the world. It's not so it's not simply a, a liberal um, uh, uh, way of thinking about things in the later 20th century, or a democratic way of thinking about things. There are a number of Republicans who who adopted that notion of, uh, of a kind of mission in the world. But it does seem to me that, that that way of thinking about things also underlies Roosevelt's justification for an expanded role of the United States, even in the Western Hemisphere. And in, in what's come to be known as the corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, um, my sense is that, 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 that the way he's talking about the need for uh, it's not even what we would call what was traditionally called pre preemptive action, almost a preventive action on the part of the United States to step in in cases like, for example, uh, Cuba. We I know we went into Cuba I think three times, um, just um, just in the 19, early 1900s. Um, several other Latin American countries. We step in when those nations act in a way that we that is unacceptable for a civilized nation. We need to step in. Uh, sometimes with um, with economic advisors, sometimes with with administrators, sometimes with the military, to make sure that they're behaving themselves, behaving, uh, conducting themselves as a civilized nation should. And um, and it seems to me that that leads to uh, all kinds of interventionism, uh, especially under Roosevelt. But of course, Woodrow Wilson continued that, and there have been other presidents that that sort of flirted with that a little bit in the Western Hemisphere. Sure. Lyndon uh, Johnson did it in 1965. In right. the Lyndon Johnson did it in 1965 in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, usually what would happen was that these uh, Latin American countries would run up uh, debts with European powers. And Roosevelt, and some legitimate uh, national security concern here, 
that the European powers would use that as an excuse to reassert themselves in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, likewise, with the, um, uh, the Philippines and others, as the Spanish Empire was, was decaying, uh, advocates of imperialism could say, look, the realities of world politics are that the Philippines are not going to be independent. If we don't govern them, somebody else will. And we probably would do a better job than uh, the Germans or the French or uh, the Japanese uh, in these countries. So there were some legitimate sort of bases in realpolitik about some of these foreign policy matters, completely separate from the racial theory uh, involved there. That's a great point. Yeah, this is all taking place in the age of, um, uh, of colonialize, uh, colonialization. And uh, yeah, this is that's a great point. Um, we have about two minutes left, so uh, I'm trying to see if we've got uh, any recent questions that have come in. Um, how about this one? Here's a fun one for the last two minutes. Uh, would Theodore Roosevelt ever have a chance to get elected as president? <laughs> Actually, I heard reading uh, there were a group of conservative historians and social scientists uh, who were very hostile to Donald Trump. And one of them pointed out, well, you know, Trump has been likened to you know, Hitler or to Mussolini or to whatever. But they were making the claim that historically the person he most resembles is Theodore Roosevelt, uh, especially one of the points we didn't get to talk about. I, I think one of the central institutions in this period is the political party and Roosevelt and the progressives general hostility to political parties uh, is something that's really important in the transformation of how you know, American democracy uh, worked. So, th th I mean, Roosevelt really did upend the whole mechanism, the whole procedure of electoral politics. Uh, he won some of the first primaries. You know, a couple of states had primaries in 1912. Roosevelt won them, including in Taft's own state of Ohio. And he began there to make out the claim that this was what legitimated somebody getting the nomination. Uh, not the party bosses, not the party machine, but rather the direct appeal of this presidential candidate to the uh, to the people. Yeah, that's great. I would, so I would I, say that one of the reasons today, the way that people get elected president is largely due to Theodore Roosevelt and progressive reform. That's very interesting. I, let me yeah, let me add a couple of quick thoughts about that. Uh, I mean, not to I let let me preface my thought by saying that uh, that in very important respects, uh, Donald Trump does not deserve any kind of comparison <laughs> with Theodore Roosevelt in the sense that I mean, Roosevelt was both, I mean, enormously energetic and accomplished. One one cannot imagine Donald Trump writing four volumes of well-regarded American history, for instance, or bios of anybody else. So, you know, intellectually, yeah, yeah, exactly, right. So intellectually, there's no comparison whatsoever. But having said that, you know, you, you think about it a little bit, I mean, in ways that would seem maybe to his followers positive and in one or two ways negative, there there really are parallels in the kind of appeal they make. There's this, this unabashed pro-Americanism. You know, there's a kind of populism, a disgust with party elites that are captured by, by various kinds of self-interest. There's a sort of aggressively assertive manliness in the, the anti-PC <laughs> rhetoric. Um, there's crony capitalism, really. I mean, I think that's the implication of TR's administrative government. Uh, he wouldn't accept that, but I think that really is the the implication of it. And there's certainly that in uh, in Donald Trump. There's there's the advertisement of a omnicompetent, you know, rule of experts kind of kind of government that rises above party politics. 
all of that is sort of a populism that uh, I think that, that there is a kind of continuity. The question asked, uh, you know, could he could he get elected? Um, I, TR would have a better chance than Donald Trump, but I'm not <laughs> sure. And I'm not sure in either case. That's that's fascinating. You have to wonder. It does, um, uh, Matt just submitted the last question and raised a thought in my mind about that. You have to wonder if if what's going through the minds of Republicans today about what Trump will do were the same sorts of things weren't going through the minds of, of Republicans back when Roosevelt was considering another run. You know, um, I, I, I should add to that one more point. I mean, the, 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 there's a sense in which you could consider from the perspective of the original founders, TR anti-constitutionalist and, and, and Trump clearly is that too. So there's, so there's that also. That's great. Well, Maybe we should end on that. Is that a high point? I'm not sure. <laughs> but I, I thank you both very much. I've learned a great deal from our conversation. And uh, thank you both for being here and sharing your thoughts with us all. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, all the students, for submitting the questions. Yeah, yes. thanks. for They're very good questions. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to, yeah. uh, to address all of them. Um, yeah. But, uh, but very stimulating. Yeah, great, great question today. So, Paul, I learned a lot. Good to meet you. Thanks for here. Well, we'll try to do it again sometime. Hopefully we'll have another chance. And uh, again, yeah, thanks to everybody who joined us and for the great questions. If you've enjoyed uh, the conversation today, consider looking into a, a course in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. This is this is kind of how we do things. We pick some interesting figures and, and texts, documents, and, and have conversations. You can find out more about those courses uh, at our website, teachingamericanhistory.org. Also, just a reminder, You'll be receiving an email with the link to request a certificate of participation. Our next webinar will be Saturday, February 13th, 11 o'clock Eastern Time, and it will be on Franklin Roosevelt through Depression and War. And I'll be joined by David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin Platteville and Stephen Toodle of the College of the Sequoias. So I hope to see you again then. Until then, best wishes and take care.